Today, I want to start off by sharing with you something from a colonial times in America, and that is Lindsay Woolsey. <laughs> I remember as a kid hearing about Lindsay Woolsey. I, I had no idea what it is, but it turns out that Lindsay Woolsey is a kind of coarse twill or plain woven fabric with a linen warp and a woolen weft. Warp and weft. And in colonial America, it was used because apparently there was a shortage of wool uh, in colonial America. The coarse fabric was known in England as stuff, which was woven in Kidderminster in the 17th century, originally a wool fabric. And it may have been of this Lindsay Woolsey construction later on. This name derived from a combination of lin, which is an archaic word for flax, therefore the word linen, and wool, Lindsay Woolsey. This textile has been known since ancient times and it was known as shatnes, the Hebrew Torah and Jewish law expressly forbidding us to wear it. Okay, well, if that word shatnes shows up, let's, let's share with you Jastrow's definition of shatnes. And Jastrow tells us, the professor, that shatnes, first of all, it's a homo toluiton, which means it's nowhere else mentioned in the Bible, so we have no idea what the etymology is. It's a web mixed of wool and linen. Now, this is a mysterious word, shatnes. It doesn't look like a Hebrew word, and linguists have speculated that the term may come from the Coptic word sacht, which means woven, and nuj, false, or from the Arabic words shash, a black gauze, and atmuz, a strong. But none of these explanations is universally accepted, and the origin of the word remains unknown. But it comes up yesterday in our Parsha, and... Our Pasha states in Leviticus 19.19, in one of the two biblical verses that prohibit wearing shatnas, in both cases, the references to shatnas appear within the context of other prohibitions against kilayim, mixing two species together. Look at our verse. Et chukotai tishmeru, you will observe my laws. Behemtecha lo tarbiya kilayim, you shall not let your cattle mate with different species. Your field you shall not sow with two kinds of seeds. And now here it comes. And cloth from a mixture of two kinds of material. And here is the word. Shatnes. Whatever that means. Lo you shall not put on or wear. You should not wear this mixture, which the Torah calls shatnas. According to Chachamim, the Torah defines shatnas only as a mixing of linen made from the flax plant with wool from sheep or lambs. And the whole of the Mishnah in Kilayim is an exposition of the laws of shatnes and what is a wool sheep or a lamb what is the mix the rabbis worried that some less common fabrics like silk might be confused for flax so they prohibited mixtures involving such 
materials out of fear of marasayin, that someone will see you wearing it and giving the appearance of breaking the law. But when silk became more common, the Shulchan Aruch in Yoradea 298 tells us that the concern of marasayin disappeared. And so later legal halachic poskim eliminated these prohibitions of using silk. Now, the laws of Shatnas refer only to sewing wool and linen together in the same garment. They do not restrict wearing, for instance, a wool sweater with linen pants. What are the explanations for Shatnas? Let's take a look. From reviewing the explanations, you can see very clearly that we're all struggling. So the Rambam, the Maimonides, suggests it's because of Chukas Agoim. We don't want to imitate the Gentiles since Shatnis clothing was worn by their heathen priests. We'll come back to this idea of priests. Because many would not agree with the Ramban, since our Kohanim were allowed to wear Shatnis. There were exceptions to the rule of Shatnis. One being the Kahuna, the Posuk in Exodus. Exodus 39. Aaron and his sons would make tunics of fine linen of woven work. Vesamitz nefes, the headdress of fine linen. So all of that is linen. So we had a mixture by the kahuna of wool and linen. So that was an exception. The Ramban, Nachmanides, tells us it's because it would appear as if man is defying that God created the world complete and he has to kind of finish the job meaning there's an order to the world there's no chaos during the seven days of creation we have to respect that order and we mustn't intervene in the natural order of his universe he brings that from actually a medrash in Bechukosai in Bechukosai Telechu the word Bechukosai means chok there are two explanations as Alan will tell you one is a chok, meaning it's a non-rational explanation as opposed to a mishpat. Shom, som, chok, or mishpat, we're told in Exodus. The difference between mishpat is something rational that I could understand rationally. Chok is something non-rational. Comes along the posuk in Bechukosaitelechu, and the Medrash suggests that that is not necessarily so. Bechukosai there means the natural order in which the world was created. The planets, the sun, the moon, the stars, the seas, the shore of the seas, the sand, and the tahom. Medrash is telling us, in Bechukosai, you have to walk in the statutes of the natural law. I think the Ramban is suggesting that if we were going to go against the natural law, then Shatnas represents that forbidden fruit. The Sefer HaChinuch, medieval, comes to destroy the spiritual fabric of the universe because once entangled, each item can no longer perform its original designated task in the universe as a distinct spiritual force. You can see how we're really struggling with this mixture of wool and linen. And if I can quote from the Nitziv, the Nitziv has an absolutely dazzling understanding that makes use of modern science. And the Nitziv suggests the following. On the posuk, et chukosai tishmu bemtecho kilaim lo tizra kilaim and shatnas, he says the following. 
V'chein levishas shatnes. Now, the Nitziv is writing, Alan suggested that the telegraph was invented in the 1870s. I looked it up. Uh, in Portage, Indiana, was the first experimental use of telegraph, the use of cables to phone one another in Portage, Indiana. Can you believe it? Not some 40 miles from where I'm sitting. And he says the following. V'chein levishas shatnes. So what you're doing is you are destroying the unique natural properties of wool and linen as to when they were uniquely by themselves. By weaving there together, what you're doing is destroying the natural properties of that. And he proves it from... 19th century science. As this is well known, one of the secrets of science known to the scientists. If you take a mixture of wool and linen and wrap it, you wrap it round one of these telegraphic poles. As you can see, he's using that in the English sense, telegraph. You can actually interrupt either the Morse code or the speech. So someone is speaking through the telegraphic pole by covering it with a thread made of twisting flax and wool together and tying it onto a telegraph pole, you will stop the wire from transmitting speech. Where would he have found such a source for such a claim about telegraph wire? Isn't the claim easily disproved by experiment? Does a telegraph wire transmit speech anyway? Maybe he meant a telephone wire? And in Cooperman's edition, all these comments are in brackets. And in the Friedman edition of the Nitziv, I did not find it. But I thought that this was absolutely stunning statement from the Nitziv. Very nice. The rabbis of the Talmud and later generations use shatness as a paradigm for this chok, this non-rational law without a logical explanation. But it hasn't stopped generations of our commentators from attempting to deduce some spiritual meaning from this strange law. In the Zoyar, for instance, mixing of wool and linen was a symbol of mixing the divine with impurity or diluting the heavenly powers, as we're told in Tikkunim 109a. And in yesterday's Parsha, I read in the Zoyar 386, the same thing. So where do we go with this? Let's look at this exception again. The Mishnah in Kelaim chapter 9 tells us the following. There is an exception to the rule. So let's look at the exception, because from the exception, we learn the rule. And the Mishnah Kilaim says, The prohibition, remember this is 2nd century Mishnah, the prohibition of Kilaim, of multiple seeds together, only applies to the mixture of wool and linen. It could have applied to other kind of materials. No. Nope. It's only wool and linen, ve'ena metama etc. But there is an exception. 
Ein hakonim lotion l'shama beis hamikdash elot semero fishdim. The exception to the rule is the kahuna, the priest who is officiating in the temple, may only wear semero fishdim from that verse in Exodus 37 that I showed you. Priests do not wear any materials to serve in the temple except for woolen linen. And Rashi brings us this wonderful uh, medrash from uh, Sifri, in which we brought the other place in the Torah where it mentions shatnes. In Deuteronomy 22, Lo tilbash shatnes tzemro fishtim yachtov. Unlike our parsha yesterday, in Deuteronomy it says it straight out, and it doesn't, re- doesn't mention anything about kilayim. All it says is, you shall not wear shatnes, assuming we know what shatnes means, tzemer upishtim yachtov. But then in the very next verse, in verse 12, it says, Gedilim taseloch, you shall make tassels on the four corners of the garment. Al arba kamfus ksusecha shetachasebo. The second verse, then Rashi tells us, is an exception to the first verse. It is an exception. You are not allowed to wear tzemer ufishtim except when you put the tassels on your clothes. What does that mean? And modern commentators such as Milgram tells us that the rabbis are now pointing us through this wonderful midrashic trope of juxtaposition of one verse with the other. In fact, there are two separate commands. One is don't wear shatnas and one is make tzitzis. But the fact that the tzitzis comes right after means that it is an exception to the rule of shatnas. Why the exception? So Milgram argues that shatnas is forbidden to Israelite commoners because it's reserved for the priestly caste. Remember, it's the Kohanim in the temple that must wear the royal purpuria, the garments of shatnas and wool, which represents royalty. But the commoners are not allowed to, except on their tzitzis. That one blue dye, sky blue thread that reminds every Jew that he has a smidgen of royalty. It's a conscious attempt by the Torah to encourage all Israelites to aspire to a degree of holiness comparable to that of the priests. I thought that was one of the best apologetics that we find in a modern commentator. Very nice. One Midrash, however, which I want to focus on today, which is really my, my thesis that I'm, I'm coming to, is a Midrash that I can share with you that comes from Pirkei de Rebeleza. And it's a, that's the earliest place that I found it. Within our tradition, I will show you where else we find it. But if you can read with me, Pirkei de Rebeleza, Perik Aleph, Loma Hizharu Yisrael al Shatnes. Here we have a very early witness why are we told about shatnas? This midrash traces the prohibition against shatnas to a strange story. Shehevi kain moisa me'acholo klayot zerapishtin lekorban, because if we go back in history to the primordial times of Cain and Havel, and we try to understand the original 
fratricide, the very first murder in the Bible. Remember, death had only come after the curse of Adam and Eve because God had forewarned them, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Death will be brought into the world. And we don't see it. They didn't die. For a, I mean, until they, after their long years. The very first time we see from death is the murder of Cain and Hevel. And murder is on all our minds these last few weeks as we watch the wholesale slaughter of innocent civilians. Where does this murder come from in the human heart? I was thinking this week about the comparisons. I, in fact, asked my mother-in-law. She was alive in 1944 when they liquidated the Warsaw Ghetto block by block by block. And she knew that it was occurring. They read the New York Times, of course. And we are likewise watching this going block by block by block, standing by and helpless. And where are we and where is God and all these questions. If we go back to that first murder in the Bible, it is connected to shutness. Look at this. One Midrash traces the prohibition against shutness to the first murder. Why? Abel brings a carbon of God and Cain brings a carbon. Cain brings from his food. Klayot, Zera Pishtin. He takes from one of those natural ingredients of Shatnes, flax. Flax is not easy to come by. And he brings that as a carbon to God. He brings from the choicest of his firstborn goats, sheep. And not only that, from the fat of the kvasim, before they were even sheep shorn, meaning they're young, the choicest of his sheep. Okay, well, let's. Let, what's the backstory to that? So if we read Pirkei de Rebeleza, Cain ohev lavod adama. Cain was a, he loved to work the land. If, if, if I read from, from Alter, he says the following, the widespread culture founding story of rivalry between the herdsman and the farmer. The farmer is Cain. He's bringing from the farmland. The herdsman is Hevel. This is a recast in a pattern that will dominate the whole of Genesis, the displacement of the firstborn by the younger son. If there is any other reason intimated as to why God would favor Abel's offering and not Cain's, it would be in the narrator's stipulation that Abel brings the very best of his flock. So we don't know why God preferred Cain, but he preferred Cain's. So, So Cain gives from the best of he has, which is flax. Hevel brings from the best of what he has, which is the, the, the animal. <laughs> now it comes to the Yontov of Pesach. Well, what do you have to do on Pesach? You have to bring a carbon Pesach. So Adam tells his boys on Pesach, Atidin Yisrael lahagriv karbonos psachim. In the future, Am Yisrael is going to bring a carbon Pesach tonight. Hakrivu gamatem. Now you also bring in front of your God a carbon. Hevi Kain Mosemachol to Klayot Zerapishtin. So Kain brings from what he has. He's a farmer. He's a farmer. 
So he takes from his crop. Vehevi hevel mi Hevel is a herdsman, so he brings from his. They both bring with the right intention to serve God and sacrifice. Pirkei Rebeleza tells us something very dark. One of them was accepted and one of them was not accepted. Rabbi Yeshua ben Korcha Oime, Omar Kodesh Baruch As a result of that conflict between Cain and Hevel, his was accepted, his was not. He was jealous and he kills him, the first murder. God says, Al yit arvu minchas Cain vehevel olam. Never the two shall meet. Forevermore, the carbon that he brought, which is flax, and the carbon that he brought, which is before it was shorn with wool from the goats or the sheep. Never the two shall twain shall meet. Never again, as it says, Lo tilba shatnes, you shall not wear shatnes. This is the connection between shatnes and the very first murder. Now I want to end up with what really is the reason brought by the earliest Targumim. Pirkei de Rebeleza is the 7th century. But in the Jerusalem Targum, if I can quote to you, the Targum tries to fill out, and in the earliest translations, the story behind this premeditated murder. And one approach found in all the three Jerusalem Targum, which is late first century, presents the fight as a theological argument. <laughs> a theological argument. Because we learned already in Bracious Rabba that the argument was, hey man, you like to be a herdsman, I like to be a farmer, so you take all the cattle in the world and I'll take all the farm. But then there, an argument grew, because what's going to happen with the Beis Amikdosh? And so they're arguing about, well, the Beis Amikdosh is an exception. I also want to share that with you. That's one argument given. But let me quote from the Targum. The two had gone forth into the field, and Cain answered and said to Abel, I perceive that the world was created in goodness, but it is not governed according to the fruit of good works, for there is respect to persons in judgment. Therefore, it is that your offering was accepted and mine was not. He's complaining to Abel before he kills him. He's having a theological argument and says, Look, the, the world may have been created in goodness, but this wasn't fair. And so Abel says to Cain, No, the world was created in goodness, and according to the fruit of good works is it governed. You must have done something wrong to deserve this, that your carbon was not accepted. And Cain doubles down with the most famous Apikorsusha statement in Rabbinics and says, Ani Cain lehevel. Cain answered Hevel, let din let dayan. There is neither judgment nor judge, nor this world, nor another world, nor good reward to the righteous, nor vengeance to the wicked. So Abel then gets killed and becomes the prototype of a martyr who dies for the profession of his faith. Cain is the prototype of the heretic, the Apicorus, Acher, who also, when he saw a father telling his child, go up the tree, get me that shiluach hakan, get me those eggs, shoo away the mother bird, 
and the boy listens to the father to perform the mitzvah, the only two mitzvahs that are rewarded with long life, Kabedes Ovicha and Shiluach Hakein. And he goes up and the branch breaks and he falls and he fractures his skull and he dies. And Acher, looking at that, says the same words, let din the let dayan. There is no God and there is no justice. Even so, the Targum does not present the killing as premeditated. The two brothers are engaging in a theological argument. Is there justice in the world? Cain then loses his temper, unable to accept that God rejected his offering for a good reason. And I think that these point their fingers to the Rabboni Shalolam. Both them point the fingers, at least partially at fault, in the killing of Abel, because we are not told the reason why the Rabboni Shalolam didn't accept it. And so there are two arguments as to Fushatness. The one argument is, this was the first murder. And God is telling us, Omar HaKadosh Baruch Hu, let me share with you one more time that text, because it is so critical for my heretical reading today. The reason for the Shatnes Chok, a non-rational reason, I'm going to give you a rational reason. It is part of the order of creation. Why? Omar Kodesh Baruch it is not appropriate that we should mix the offering of the sinner with the offering of the martyr. In this Pikrit Rebeleza, we have a very pious interpretation which focuses on the sin of fratricide, of murder, the very first murder in the Bible. For this, the shatness comes to remind us of the very first murder and how we shouldn't mix the guilty with the innocent. Why? Yeshdin, the Yeshdayan. There is a moral order. There is a moral complexity to the world and a moral justice. So shatness reminds us of that moral order. But the opposite could also be true. Don't mix the mincha of the chote with the mincha of the zakai. Could be, don't remind me of my favoritism. That would be a heretical reading. That would combine the let din, the let dayan, and the martyr with the perpetrator. That our lives, just like the shutness, is not black and white. It's not good versus evil. As we can see in the human heart today, there is a darkness in the human heart that allows for the ongoing fratricide of one human to another, even though we're both created in the image of the divine. And that shutness, for me, in a Jungian sense, represents both sides of the same coin. On the one side of the coin, don't forget there are perpetrators and there are victims and the two should never be morally clouded. One must be brought to the criminal tribunal and justice must prevail if this world is to continue. Children must not be slaughtered. On the other hand, it points back to the original fratricide and the whole setup of our moral universe in which there is room to question what precipitated 
Cain's rage. His rage was precipitated by his rejection by the father figure, the divine, who rejected his offering. And why was that? Was the sweet-smelling flavor of the keves more sweet-smelling to the divine than pure flax? Those questions are also unanswered. And so it may be that Omar Kodesh Baruch Hu, don't remind me of the shatness. Don't remind me of this morally dubious universe that I set into motion. And I think that that is what we need to be able to hold, the moral clarity and the moral lack of clarity that infects the human heart. And may this suffering of these people be over soon, and may this clarity come back to being, and we should have a wonderful, wonderful week.